morning. This morning I'd like for you to open your Bibles first of all to Psalm 48. Psalm 48. And when you have your place there, hold your finger there and turn to Zechariah 1. We'll begin with Zechariah 1 because we're continuing our series through these post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. This morning is our first, our first morning in Zechariah as we continue thinking about building the, the house of God, what it means to be all about the Lord's work in growing the kingdom, the body of Christ. But once we have read that passage and prayed, then we'll be coming back to Psalm 48 right away. So as you're finding those passages, please stand with me. And we'll begin by reading Zechariah 1, verses 1 through 6. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are now turning to Zechariah, and we thank you for the glorious things that await us in this prophet. We thank you, particularly this morning, for this passage, which prepares our hearts for what we will hear and see. We pray that this passage would have its way in us, Lord. We pray that you would help us to not discount it as if it does not apply to us, Father, but that your Holy Spirit would would work in us through this word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. And let's turn our attention now to Psalm 48. I'm going going to read this entire psalm. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beauty and elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. 
Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. I just want to ask one question. Who cares? And I don't ask that question flippantly as if to dismiss this wonderful passage, but I actually want you to think about that question. Who cares about a chapter like that? And all the truths that it contains. That psalm is God's purpose for the ages in a nutshell. God subduing His enemies, gathering His people, reigning over all, and being enjoyed and worshipped by them for all eternity. What kind of people care about that? There's only one kind of people. And it is those who love Him. Now, the book of Zechariah is filled with this kind of stuff. Filled with it. And this prophet, with his first passage... He comes to us with a message that is caused, that is designed to cause us to prepare our hearts to hear what can only be meaningful to those who belong to God, who love God. The people of God, as we find them here in the book of Zechariah and as described in the historical books of Ezra and Nehemiah, these people, they've been brought back to the land of Judah by the decree of Cyrus, by the decree of the Lord to rebuild the house of the Lord. But for 16 years, that work has gone undone while the people busied themselves about their own houses. And like Haggai, Zechariah has been sent to remedy that situation. Now, whereas Haggai's message was largely, hey, let's get back to the work of the Lord, Zechariah is, is all about encouraging the people to continue the work in the midst of opposition. He does that by putting kingdom promises and kingdom pictures in front of the people and saying, look, cling to these promises and pictures. If we were to look at it from a New Testament lens, we might say that Zechariah's whole message is look to Jesus and be motivated by his love and acts to continue building his house. The, the book consists mainly of visions and oracles. If we, if we were to begin at the beginning, we would find in chapter 1, beginning of verse 7, that Jerusalem is in a shambles because of the, the oppression of their, their foreign invaders. They're, they're in a shambles, but very quickly, God mercifully returns and, and begins the work of rebuilding his house in chapter 2. 
There's a vision in chapter 3 of this Christ figure removing the sins of the people. And then in chapter 4, a vision of another Christ figure completing the house of the Lord. Chapter 5 envisions God judging all the nations. And then in chapter 6, we see God ruling over all things and a Christ figure reigning in the house of God as king and priest. We get more of that same, of that kind of stuff through oracles in the second half of the book. These grand pictures of what God is doing for his people through Christ. Great motivation to build the house because of what the house is going to be with certainty. So what function does this first passage, the first six verses, serve? This first passage, which is not a vision, it's not an oracle, it's not anything like the rest of the book. What purpose does it serve? The first passage of Zechariah, in a sense, makes sure that the rest of the prophecy is spoken to the right audience. That is, to the repentant. Because kingdom promises and pictures will only motivate those who belong to him. So at the outset, he calls the people to repent. And this is an appropriate message for us to consider as we're talking about building the true house of God. Any message from the Old Testament calling God's people to repent is an opportunity for New Testament believers to examine themselves. So this morning we're asking ourselves, are our hearts prepared for the book of Zechariah? Are our hearts prepared for the book of Zechariah? Are we truly in the faith, do we really belong to Jesus? Because if we do not, the rest of Zechariah will be completely meaningless to us. So it's an appropriate, appropriate passage to begin with. Zechariah helps us to answer that question. How do we prepare our hearts for this prophecy? The first step is to understand this. God judges sin. God judges sin. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. That date formula at the beginning equates to late October to early November of 520 BC, which puts this passage right between those two messages in the second chapter of Haggai. The, the message that was in Haggai 2, verses 1 through 9, and Haggai 2, verses 10 through 19. And if you remember the one in Haggai 2, 10 through 19, that also was a call to repentance. So the people were building, they're building the house of God, but their hearts were far from him. And by placing this message of Zechariah around that same time, we find that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these two prophets are are, are preaching in stereo, as it were, calling for the people to repent, to bring their hearts to the Lord. The very first word revealed to Zechariah in that sentence, in verse 2, is, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. And that is not just a statement about the emotions of the Almighty. It's a reminder of the judgment brought about by hundreds and hundreds of years of God's people turning their back on Him. Now, the people to whom this message is coming, they're not new to this. They know of the Lord's anger with their fathers because they lived in exile in Persia. They're the ones that came back to Judah. 
And even though it's been approximately 18 years since they came back, that's not so long that they've forgotten what it's like to live in Persia. And even though they're living in the land now, they are still under Persian rule, slaves in their own land. In a sense, they're still experiencing the consequences of God's anger for their father's refusal to turn to God. But given the many hundreds of of years of rebellion and the depth of, of their idolatry, that they are still experiencing the anger, anger of God, that is not remarkable. What is remarkable is that God was so long-suffering before he brought it upon them and that he would ever give them any relief from it. God is a holy God and he brings judge, judgment upon sin. He is extremely patient. But you can count on the fact that he judges sin. And that's a universal truth. This is not just the testimony of, of one nation many, many years ago. The sinful hearts of the rebellious sons of Israel is indicative of all mankind. All people reject the authority of God. All people sin against him. All people worship other gods in his place. And all, therefore, deserve his wrath. And that's why the New Testament speaks to all people in places like Hebrews 9.27 saying, it has been appointed to man to die once and then comes the judgment. And in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, not for Jews, but for all men. That exile of the Israelites into Babylon and, and, and Persia, that was simply a picture of the eternal separation that all people will suffer after death. Because of our sin, we deserve to die and spend eternity in hell away from the loving presence of God. So first of all, how do we prepare our hearts for the book of Zechariah? The first thing is that we need to understand that God judges sin. The second, we need to understand that God calls for repentance unto himself. He calls for us to turn to him, repentance unto himself. Verse 3 reads, Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The word return, that's the Hebrew word for repentance. And the Lord explicitly characterizes it here as turning toward him. Repentance is turning toward God. In verse 4, he's going to characterize it as turning away from sin and evil. So repentance is turning away from sin and evil, away from false worship, and toward the living God. Return to me, he says, and I will return to you. One way to understand what the Lord is saying here in, in the context in which it's found is that he's calling them back to the covenant that he made with them at Sinai in Exodus. Come back to that, that, that covenant and you will enjoy my presence and the blessings as stipulated in that covenant. But if we're to interpret Scripture with Scripture and, and look at this through a New Testament lens, we know that one function of that old covenant is to demonstrate the need for a better one. Because these people, they could not keep the Sinai covenant. They couldn't do it. They could not be faithful to the Lord. How many times do we read in the Old Testament of the people being called to repentance? Come back to me, the Lord says. We, we read about it over and over and over from Egypt on. And how many times do their leaders have to go to the Lord interceding for, for forgiveness? What happens over and over and over? 
Now, we do see multiple shows of repentance in the Old Testament. That is, the people seemed at various times to turn toward the Lord, but it was simply an outward act. Shortly, they returned to their evil ways and their false worship. The rest of Zechariah's prophecy shows that what Zechariah is calling them to here is not back to the old covenant, but to a completely new kingdom with a new covenant led by a coming king and priest. This this command in verse 3, return to me, it's a command that has proven impossible for these people to obey throughout their history. But Zechariah depicts in chapters 3 and 4 a savior who enables them to obey. Enabling them to repent, he gives himself to them eternally. See, they need such a drastic transformation. They need him to enable them to repent and to change their hearts so that they want him. They need an incredible power to act on their behalf. This slavery that they're suffering under the Persians is emblematic of their slavery to sin. They need a mighty savior king, not just to free them from human oppressors, but to free them from slavery to their own dead hearts. So look closely again at verse 3. There's something interesting here. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Some of you may have noticed as we studied, as we studied Haggai, that phrase used repeatedly, the Lord of hosts. Now that, that phrase is not unique to these post-exilic prophets. In fact, we read it in Psalm 48 a few moments ago. But these last three prophets of the Old Testament use that phrase for God, Lord of hosts, far more than any other authors of the Bible. And Lord of hosts, why does he use it so, why do they use it so much? And here we have it three times in one sentence. One sentence. And this isn't divine Tourette syndrome. He's making a point here. Lord of hosts means something like Lord of hosts. Armies or Lord of power. The, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament renders this kurios pantocrator, which means Lord Almighty. So why do Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi refer to God over and over and over as Lord Almighty, the Lord Almighty, the Lord Almighty? It's because these three prophets are writing to people who appear to be completely powerless. They are under the thumb of the major world power of the day. But spiritually, they're in an even worse condition. They're in slavery to their own sinful hearts, powerless to set themselves free. They need an almighty God, who is ruler of the nations, but more importantly, who is ruler of human hearts, to come to their rescue and save them. And we read about that almighty Savior God in the book of Zechariah. He is described in various ways by words like Joshua, Zerubbabel, the branch, the shepherd, the fountain, and the king. The New Testament refers to him as Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. And we're we're going to see a a beautiful thing in chapter 3 in Zechariah. This vision of Joshua the priest, wherein his, his filthy garments 
are removed from him and replaced with pure vestments. Now that vision is but a picture of what took place in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus' righteous life earned the right for him to give pure vestments to his people. And on the cross, he took their filthy garments upon himself and paid the penalty for them. He absorbed the wrath of God for their sin. By that exchanging of garments, he not only removes their sin, but he also gives them righteousness. We move forward in in Zechariah to chapter 12, where the, the prophet depicts for us true repentance being given to God's people as they see the beauty of this Christ who has been sacrificed on their behalf. And they, they mourn, they truly mourn over their sin. And then turning to him in chapter 13, they are then washed in the fountain that has been opened for them in the house of David. All of that depicts Jesus giving repentance and cleansing them from their sin so that in chapter 14, the people enjoy eternal fellowship with him. Jesus enables them to repent and gives himself to them. Return to me and I will return to you. Every bit of it earned and given by the Lord Jesus. And it begins with this message here in chapter 1, return to me. Those who would benefit from The blessings of the kingdom must respond to a call to repent. They must hear the voice of the Lord calling to them and respond in repentance and faith, turning away from their sin and toward Christ and trusting in Him to save them from the wrath to come. How must we prepare our hearts for the book of Zechariah? Well, we we must understand that God calls for repentance unto Himself. Third, we must understand that God's Word is inescapable. It is Absolutely inescapable. Look at verse 4 with me. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? Their their fathers, including the Israelites from that generation that was exiled and everyone before them, they had heard this same call to repentance over and over, and yet none of them turned from their sin and toward God. And now the prophet says to this, this group of returned exiles, don't be like them. Now listen. It is likely that these returned exiles, it never even occurred to them that they were anything like their fathers. It's possible that when Zechariah began this, this, this message saying, return to me and I will return to you, they probably started looking around wondering, who is he talking to? After all, they're the ones who came back to the land to build the house of God. Hey, we're the remnant. We're actively building the house of God. God must be okay with us. But the outward act of building the house of God or rebuilding the house of God is not much different from what their fathers were doing, which was offering ritual sacrifices in the old house of God while their hearts were far from him. And so with with those words, don't be like your fathers, it became clear, no, I'm talking to you, returned exiles. It's possible that many people in the modern church are just like that. 
not, it's not possible, it's likely, highly likely, that many in the modern church, the professing church, are the same way. They hear a gospel, they hear the gospel in, in, in church on, on a given Sunday and turn their ears off because they think, well, this, this is for someone else. That other guy, he is, he's far from God. Or that woman over there, her sins are separating her from the Lord. I'm fine. I've, I've been going to church all my life. I prayed the sinner's prayer on March 14th, 1993. It says so right here in the beginning of my Bible. I wrote the date down so that I would know when I prayed that prayer. I know I'm a Christian. My parents told me that I am. And yet every time the gospel is preached in church, the Holy Spirit could be saying to them, no, I'm talking to you. And there is terrible, terrible danger in putting off a genuine act of repentance, a genuine act of repentance being turning away from sin and toward Christ in faith. Zechariah says to these people, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? This question about the fathers implies your fathers who thought the same thing that you think, they died. They suffered the wrath of God. They died in exile just like God said they would. And again, that death in exile for those people, that simply pictures the fate of every sinner today who dies separated from God. They go to eternity in hell. The prophets, do they, do they live forever? Not only did the prophets, I'm sorry, not only did the disobedient fathers die, but even the prophets who warned them, they also passed. There's only one thing that remains now and forever, and that is the word of God. In verse 6, he says, My words, my statutes, which I commanded the servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? In other words, didn't it come to pass just like I said it would? Didn't they suffer the fate that I warned them they would suffer if they did not return to me, if they did not repent? See, the fathers, they thought that they could avoid the judgment of God, but they couldn't. And many people think that. The Word of God testifies about itself over and over and over. It will have its way. Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11 reads, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that comes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's Word always does what it says. I fear that there are many in the modern church thinking that because of some external things in their lives, they must be right with God. They, they, have, they have heard an easy offer of salvation. And what I mean by that is an easy offer of salvation that sounds nothing like what Jesus and the apostles preached. The Jesus, Jesus and the apostles, they preached Dying to self, laying down one's life, leaving everything behind and following him as Lord, rather than hearing a message like that, a call to repentance and following Christ for all that he is, they hear a message that says something like, well, just say this prayer. It's the simplest thing. And so they do that as if it is some kind of spell. 
and they begin to go to church and do some outwardly religious things. And then, for many, Christianity becomes something like a religious country club that offers a host of amenities, perhaps the most valuable of which is the easing of one's conscience. But when it comes to true heart change that the Bible says is characteristic of the redeemed, there is little evidence. Personal appetites and ambitions still are the primary motivation of life. There is, there is no growing love for Jesus. There is no increasing desire to see God glorified in self or in the world. There is no desire to see Jesus ruling in one's own heart or in the nations. And when these kinds of professing Christians hear a sermon similar to this one that uses words like repentance and surrender and discipleship and self-denial, they will still fall back on that external evidence like a history of church repentance or a family tree of Christian ties or a prayer prayed on a specific date. Or the assurance given by a well-meaning parent or other loved one saying, I know you're a Christian. Oh, how it behooves us, all of us who claim the name of Christ, to periodically heed the words of 2 Corinthians 13.5, which reads, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. 1 Corinthians 10 has already been read for us this morning which teaches that these, these things that we're reading in the Old Testament, they're written for our benefit. New Testament believers, they're written for us so that we will not think that we stand when we really are falling. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. God's word is inescapable. There are no loopholes. The unrepentant will not see the kingdom of God. But, but here's the glorious news. While there is still oxygen in our lungs, it is not too late to repent and trust in Jesus Christ to save us from the wrath to come. But the, the, the New Testament says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. How do we prepare ourselves for the message of Zechariah? We must understand God's word is inescapable. And finally, we must understand that God reserves kingdom blessings for the repentant. God reserves kingdom blessings for the repentant. Look at the rest of verse 6 with me now. So, they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Various commentators and translations differ on who is repenting here. Is it the fathers or is it the current generation of returned exiles? The original language doesn't make it abundantly clear, so it's a bit of a judgment call based upon the context. My take is that it is the returned exiles who, have, who are repenting here, not the fathers, because Zechariah just told them, don't be like the fathers who didn't repent. Now, it may seem a bit confusing for us to see these people repenting when I've just made a case that Christ is the one who enables anyone to repent. So how did they repent prior to the work of Christ? Well, 
there were genuine believers in the Old Testament. You, all you need to do is to go over there and read some more of Hebrews. Just read the whole thing this afternoon. You'll be blessed. Okay? I'm not going to tell you where it is. You just find it. But there were believers in the Old Testament. They were believers in the Old Testament on the basis of faith in a coming Christ and His coming work. Romans 3 teaches that God passed over sins previously committed before Christ on the basis of faith in the work that He would do on the cross. Such is the magnificent power of Christ's redeeming work. It it is efficacious in a timeless manner. Now, among these returned exiles, there are, there are Undoubtedly were those who truly repented, but there likely were those who only went through the motions of external acts of repentance, like we see over and over in the the Old Testament. In fact, there may have been a large number of those just going through the motions. We, We might deduce that because Malachi is going to come along behind Zechariah and bring this same message once again, return to me and I will return to you at any rate. Zechariah has elicited a response of repentance from the people. And having elicited that response, he is now able to bring the rest of his prophecy, which prior to a response of repentance would have been utterly meaningless and inappropriate for these people. Because the the rest of the message of Zechariah encourages the builders of the house of God to anticipate a mighty work of God in the removal of the sin of his people and setting up a great kingdom over all the earth, a kingdom over which he himself is going to reign. And that vision is intended to motivate the people of God to continue building the house in the midst of great opposition. It is not a message appropriate to people who don't belong to God, whose sin is not going to be removed by His mighty work, who will not be partakers of His kingdom, and who have no business building His house. See, only the repentant should hear the message that follows because it speaks of blessings that only belong to the repentant. Now that is going to go for us as well. Our time in Zechariah will be meaningful only to those who truly belong to Jesus. It's going to seem utterly irrelevant to everyone else. And may may it be true of us that there's not a single person like that among us. May we all truly belong to Jesus as we walk through Zechariah. But there are people claiming the name of Christ in the church at large for whom the book of Zechariah would seem completely irrelevant. Now, in a sense, the book of Zechariah is relevant to everyone on the planet because it depicts God ruling over all people. But, strictly speaking, it is relevant only to those who belong to Jesus because it is directed to those who are saved by Him and who will enjoy Him forever. It's a message of encouragement to them. And it says things to his followers that only his followers would find comforting. Those who who do not belong to him, they will find it irrelevant to their everyday lives. Listen, that is true of so much of the Bible. And it is why I fear there is so little faithful biblical preaching and teaching in the professing church today. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls one to turn from sin and surrender in faith to Christ and follow Him in His mission. 
Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. But for about the last hundred years in America in particular, many denominations have pushed a gospel that does not call for repentance. doesn't call you to lay down your life in order to take up the life of Christ. It does not call for one to deny self, take up a cross, and follow Jesus as a master. Instead, people hear a message of salvation where someone can simply add Jesus to their already self-focused life. You just add Jesus to your team. You can continue to be all about yourself and adopt a Jesus who, who he's also about you. However, that, that is not what Jesus meant when he said, follow me. Jesus doesn't follow us. He calls us to follow him. Consequently, in, in the professing church, there are many nominal Christians who do not actually know him because they have not repented. They have not turned from their sin and surrendered to Christ as Lord. They have never denied themselves, taken up their cross, and followed him. So, many professing Christians will find messages like the ones that we're going to hear from Zechariah to be utterly irrelevant to their lives. And it isn't because Zechariah or books like Zechariah are inherently irrelevant it's, it's rather that, in a sense, these nominal Christians are reading someone else's mail. You will have this problem with the whole Bible if you're, if you're not a repentant believer. Somebody who has denied yourself, taken up your cross, followed Jesus, made Christ's mission your mission. Listen, the, the, the Bible simply is not a textbook about how to be a better, more successful you. The Bible is Psalm 48 in expanded form. It's a book about the kingdom of God, its foundation, the redemption of its people, and its propagation, all for the ultimate glory of its king. And that is perfectly irrelevant to the person who is all about self. Now certainly, the Bible has practical instruction. Now I would make the argument that Psalm 48 is the most practical chapter in the Bible. But some people prefer to use that word practical for things like how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife, how to be a good parent. So for just the next couple of moments, I'll use that as, as, as the definition that, for, for the word practical, okay? The Bible does have practical instruction, like how to be godly parents, husbands and wives. However, the Bible does not teach us how to have godly marriages or good marriages for the sake of having good marriages. Brothers and sisters, read Ephesians 5 in its context. We are given instruction about how to have good marriages, how to be godly husbands and wives, so that we will live consistently with the gospel that we proclaim, so that the people around us will believe that gospel, so that the kingdom will be expanded to the ultimate glory of the king. You have to take passages out of context to make them about you. When you study books expositionally, that is in their context, you find that the storyline of all of history is profoundly not about man, but it is about God. And all of the instruction of the Bible, all of it, all of the instruction in the Bible for man is for the purpose of leading man to enjoy God and make much of God. That is an extremely hard sell 
to unrepentant masses. That is why I believe there's so little expositional preaching taking place in the professing church today. Topical preaching and teaching in many cases, not exclusively, but in many cases, topical preaching and teaching in many cases is a a, a desperate attempt to take a book that is not about man and make it about man. And, And oftentimes, the catchphrase that is used to describe that teaching is the word relevant. And if we understand it in the, in, in the correct context, that is a very accurate way to describe what is being done there. They're taking a book that is not relevant to the unrepentant, and they're making it relevant. Listen, in a sense, the Bible has only one relevant say, thing to say to the unrepentant. There's only one thing that the Bible says pertains to the person who is not a follower of Jesus Christ, and it's this. Repent and follow Jesus Christ, or you're doomed. Everything else that the Bible has to say, it says to those who have repented and followed him. Listen, Zechariah is filled with visions and messages and oracles that are going to be so glorious to the repentant that some of us are going to have a hard time being still. And it will have the Holy Spirit's intended effect in us, that is, we will be stirred up to continue the work of building the house of God, no matter what opposition stands in our way. Now, there, there are other people in the professing church who could sit through these same messages and watch me sweating and waving my arms and getting excited and listen to many of you saying amen and getting equally excited, but regard the information coming at them as something very similar to an insurance sales pitch. Why? Why the disparity in how these things will be received? Because some have ears of repentance and others do not. Some simply are not repentant followers of Jesus Christ who love his kingdom and want to do his work. And that makes all the difference in the world. Kingdom pictures and promises they will only motivate the hearts of those who belong to him. And so the obvious question for us this morning as we close is, do you belong to him? And I would, I would beg you, friends, brothers, sisters, do not appeal to what other people have said about you. I know you're a Christian because I heard you pray that prayer. And don't appeal to a date on a calendar. That I know that I prayed a prayer on, on that day. Do you know that there's no such thing as a sinner's prayer in the Bible? Do you know that what the Bible calls us to, and to follow Christ, is repentance and faith. Turn from your sins and surrender your life to the Lord Jesus and follow Him as Master and Lord, trusting in His blood on the last day to speak for you to the Almighty. Those who have not turned from their sin and surrendered to Jesus in faith must do so today. Today is the day of salvation. Now, you may have questions about some of the things that I said, and you're sitting with with a a group full of people who can answer those questions. I would love to talk to you afterwards. There are other elders here who would love to talk to you, but don't leave here with, with questions unanswered. This is the most important thing you will ever consider. Do you belong to him? If you don't, Zechariah will be meaningless to you. 
if you do, not only will Zechariah be exciting to you, but you'll be a participant in what it depicts, which is the most wonderful thing imaginable. Prepare your heart for the message of this prophecy by giving your heart to the Lord Jesus. I'm going to pray here in just a moment. And when I'm done praying, then we'll have a moment of silent reflection together before we we sing a final song. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your unfathomable kindness. Your kindness which leads us to repentance. And there there are a host of us here in the room who have enjoyed that kindness for many years. And we, we know that you have led us to repentance and that we know the Lord Jesus because we have watched you change our hearts over the years. And though we are not what we will be, we're not what we were. Our desires are different. When we hear the things of the Lord Jesus, our, our affections are stirred and we, we love the kingdom and we love him. We, it is obvious to us that we are not what we were before repentance and faith. Lord, for, for others, it's likely the case that though there was a prayer prayed or, or some kind of experience, there has been no change. And their life identified as Christianity has been All uphill battle with no affection for Jesus growing. No growth in love for the things of the Lord. No growth in love of the church and of your mission. So Father, we we pray for, for those in that situation that you would pour out your kindness on them and that you would help them to see the beauty of Christ that He rescues us from the wrath to come, that You would move them to turn from their sin and toward this beautiful Jesus, this strong Jesus who saves sinners. That today would be the first day of their new life in Him. Would You do that, Father? Would You pour out Your kindness on them? Bring them to repentance. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.